0: Good morning, this is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Every quarter, WFUV strike Accord campaign examines an issue that's important to you. This time, our news reports, PSAs, and public affairs programs are delving into the need to combat mental health stereotypes. On today's Forum Conversations, my guest is University of Southern California Professor of Law, Ellen Sachs. She's joining me by phone to discuss how she became an Ivy League grad, legal scholar, endowed professor, all while coping with schizophrenia. But first, here's Ellen reading from her autobiography, The Center Cannot Hold, My Journey Through Madness.
1: So my doctor in New Haven supported me in my many efforts to get off medication, which I undertook with great gusto and failed miserably each time. But I started having a battle brewing with my L.A. analyst, Kaplan, who wanted me to just stay on the drugs and get on with my life. So I decided I would try one last time and use my best efforts to get off, quoting from the text. So I started the reduction. I hid what I was feeling when I started feeling bad. Months before I'd accepted an invitation to attend a workshop at Oxford, and by the time I boarded the plane from home, I was a complete wreck. When I walked into Kaplan's office my first day back, I headed straight for the corner, crouched down on the floor, and began to shake. All around me were thoughts of evil beings poised with daggers. They'd slice me up in thin slices, or make me swallow hot coals. Kaplan would later describe me as, quote, writhing in agony. Even in this state, what he accurately describes as acutely and floridly psychotic, I refuse to take more meds. The mission is not yet complete.
0: Good morning, Professor Sachs. Hi, Robin. How are you? Now, Professor Sachs, you spent years going in and out of psychiatric hospitals because of schizophrenia. Doctors told you that you would never be able to hold a job or live alone. And not only do you have a job, I mean, you're the dean of a prestigious university. Uh, You're a law professor. You have an Ivy League education. So looking back... What do you think about the doctor's diagnosis?
1: You know, I think the diagnosis was accurate. You know, when you look at the diagnostic criteria, I fit. I think the prognosis turned out to be very flawed. So I was given a, quote, very poor and a, quote, grave prognosis, which, as you say, meant that I was unable, supposed to be unable to live independently, let alone work. Um, and if I worked, it would be at a menial job flipping burgers. And uh, obviously that's not how my life turned out. So I think the diagnosis is accurate. The prognosis turned out to be not. It may have been accurate, but that I had the good fortune uh, to have adequate resources to be able to defy it and, and, and not enact it.
0: So what do you attribute to that blessing?
1: I think there are a number of things. One is just excellent treatment. I have four or five-day-a-week psychoanalytic psychotherapy for decades and continuing. I've been trained. I know it's supposed to end. That's part of the process, but I'm a lifer. I'm just not willing to take the risk. I have excellent psychopharmacology. It took me years to accept the need for medication and to stop trying to get off it every other month. But now that I've gotten on a good medication and stay on it, that makes my life much better. I also have a wonderful group of family and friends, including a beloved husband after basically 18 years of not dating because uh, I was just too tormented. Um, and my family and friends, you know, give my life a, a richness and a depth and a meaning. And they're also another set of eyes to observe if I'm starting to slip because sometimes – My husband and my friend Steve, for example, can tell that I'm slipping even before I notice it. And then finally, I have an incredibly wonderful workplace. It not only accommodates but embraces my needs, very intellectually stimulating, which is great for me because using my mind is one of my best defenses against my mental illness, and the school really challenges me and incentivizes me to to use my mind that way. Um, So I think all of those things came together. Also, there's another factor, which is, you know, in addition to having mental illness, I've had several serious physical illnesses, and a friend of mine who's a neurologist has said, Ellen, for an unlucky person, you're very lucky, so I think there's a bit of luck in there as well.
0: You just used the term um, slipping, Ellen, so help us understand what it's like to uh, be a person who has schizophrenia. Describe what happens to you during a mental episode.
1: Well, I think a psychotic episode, the best analogy, is like a waking nightmare. So you have all the bizarre images and the impossible things happening in the utter, utter terror. Only with a nightmare, you open your eyes. You wake up and open your eyes, and it goes away, and no such luck with a psychotic episode. And for me, my schizophrenia involves delusions, which are fixed and false beliefs that aren't responsive to evidence. So I'll have a belief frequently that I've killed hundreds of thousands of people with my thoughts. I might have occasional hallucinations, very rare for me, uh, visual hallucinations, and disorganized and incoherent thinking. It's called loose associations. So I was having a breakdown on the roof of the Yale Law School, and I told my friends, I said, are your copies of the cases having words jumping around like mine have? I think someone's infiltrated my cases. We've got a case to joint. I don't believe in joints, but they do hold your body together. So words loosely connected but put together don't make sense. A lot of people with schizophrenia have what are called negative symptoms, apathy, withdrawal, inability to work, inability to have relationships. And except for the first two years of my illness, I've been blessed not to have those malignant negative symptoms.
0: Now, do you know that they are delusions when you're having them? Uh I mean, there's a
1: range. You know, I can have a transient delusional thought and immediately dismiss it. Oh, that's just your illness acting up. And farther along on the spectrum, I can be more taken in with the beliefs. I always know when my beliefs will be thought to be crazy, even if I think I have a special premium on the truth. And because of that, um, I can make my way in a professional world because I don't say those things out loud. And if I feel like I can't not say them out loud, I stay home. So I have social judgment. I know it will be thought crazy, but there are times when I believe the things you know with all my heart.
0: So how do you know the difference between when it is a slight or small psychotic break and when it has a capability to get out of hand, or do you?
1: Sure. My husband says psychosis is not like an on-off switch but like a dimmer. So at the far end, it's very minor and understandable and easily dismissible, and further along it's harder. At the very far end, I'll be shaking in a crouch in a corner and shaking, and that hasn't happened in a good decade
0: so when was the last time you said you had the last major episode in a decade? Were there smaller episodes?
1: Oh sure, yeah, sure, sure, yeah.
0: Ellen, you wrote about your experience in your book, "The Center Cannot Hold My mm-hmm. Journey through Madness," and in mm-hmm. it, you describe your schizophrenia as something that rolls in like a slow fog, right. What do you mean by that
1: it It happens very kind of gradually and subtly. You don't really know what's going on until you're suddenly all the way in and uh, in trouble. So that's kind of
0: what I meant. So what is the earliest memory you have that, you know, something was different in your version of the world compared to people around you? You know, it's sort of
1: interesting because I went for many years thinking that everybody had the same chaotic and violent and crazy thoughts that I did, that they were just better at managing them and not saying them so that my problem was not my mental health my social uh, attitude—that I was so that I was socially maladroit and not mentally ill—and it really took—and um, I had all these reasons for thinking this is why people think I'm mentally ill, but here's why it's not really true. And I only really came to believe that it was true when I got on really good new medication that cleared my mind, and I thought, huh, so maybe people don't have all those crazy ideas that I used to have. Maybe they have a mind more like my mind on medication. And once I, it's interesting because once I accepted that I had the illness and needed the medication, it, it came to have defined me much less. It was like accident instead of essence. So it's sort of paradoxical. The more I accepted it, the less prominent a role it played in my life.
0: Now, why was it so hard for you to accept going on medication?
1: People have different reasons for refusing medication. Some people don't like the side effects. Uh, you know, I think a big reason for a lot of people and for me was the quote, what we call in the business, the narcissistic injury of having an illness and needing medication. You just don't want to need, admit that that's the case. So the way that I would prove that I wasn't really mentally ill was by getting off the medication and succeeding. And I undertook each effort with great gusto and always failed miserably. <laughs>
0: And you said in your autobiography that uh, you learned so-called these masking skills that helped you manage the schizophrenia. So can you give me an example of what a masking skill is and how you used it?
1: Well, just what I said earlier, that I just understood what people would be alarmed by and just didn't say that out loud. Actually, I have a friend, Terry Cheney, and she and I are going to try to write a book together. She's bipolar, and we talk about, quote, passing as normal, um, which we both do. And I think, you know, it's a good thing to be able to do, actually.
0: Give me an example of passing, Ellen.
1: Well, an example would be I'm in front of a classroom and I feel like, you know, the students are sending rays into my mind and stuff like that. And I just tell myself to take a step back, you're teaching a class, ask the the student questions about the topic at hand, respond to their answers. And so I just push the stuff away and focus on the task at hand.
0: So you are able to sort of control the thoughts? Uh, Mostly,
1: not always, but mostly, yeah.
0: And the medication helps with that?
1: Owe oh, t- uh, amazingly much. Yeah, yeah. No, if I weren't on medication, I would be, you know, on the streets or in abortion care or something like that. Also, if I weren't in therapy, I probably would.
0: Do you think you'll have to be in therapy for the rest of your life?
1: I do. I do. I, I, uh, you know, I just think I, I need it, and uh, you know, there's no shame in, in needing, needing care. I, I used to say about medication, I didn't want to use a crutch. I now say, if my foot are broken, were broken, I would gladly use a crutch. Why wouldn't I? Treat my neurotransmitters, my broken neurotransmitters, as gently as a broken foot. You know, I'm really completely reconciled to being on medication and, and expect to be in it forever. And I'm afraid to stop therapy because last time I stopped, I ended up in the hospital for five months.
0: When was the last time you were in?
1: That I was hospitalized mm-hmm. a long time ago, eighty two, eighty three. Oh, so, okay. so let me let me just say, you know, so I was given this grave prognosis. And I ended up going back to Yale Law School. I went to Vanderbilt first in my class, Oxford on a Marshall Scholarship, and then Yale Law School. Uh, withdrawn from Yale because of a psychotic episode and went back and uh, did very well and ended up uh, getting a great teaching job and several offers. And So, you know, uh, the prediction was very dire, and the outcome was a big success. Uh, again, a lot of that was luck, but some of it was hard work.
0: Now, do you really believe it was luck? Do you yeah, I really it do. It? You
1: do? I really do, yeah.
0: So what about people who aren't so so lucky?
1: Well, I'm sorry for them. I mean, I, <laughs> one thing, you know, people will say to me when I give a talk, you know, I'm a mental health professional, and, you know, my uh, my company lets me see my patients 15 minutes every three months. How on earth are they supposed to do as well as you? And I basically say, you're right. And I feel some survivor guilt. I've had all these resources invested in me, and most people don't. It's sort of interesting. A lot of times people say I'm unique, but, you know, I'm, I'm not. I'm doing a study at UCLA and USC where we have – 20 high-functioning people, MDs, JDs, PhD candidates, teachers, students. So there are people like me. They just, the stigma's so great, they they don't come forward.
0: So why do you think being a person who has a mental illness is so stigmatized? It's hard to
1: say. I mean, society always has kind of outgroups that they marginalize, and difference is kind of scary. Another possibility might be... um, that they blame the person for having it. Actually, Glenn Close has a t-shirt. I think it's Glenn Close. It says, imagine being blamed for having cancer. Well, people are blamed for mental illnesses if it's a choice. They may also feel guilty if their family or friends. Like, did I do something wrong, even though I think of severe mental illness as a no-fault brain disease, and it doesn't have to do with upbringing or how you've been treated or whatever. So That's another thing. Um, and there may be some kind of unconscious fear or fantasy that it's contagious. If I get too close to it, it's going to happen to me. But it's, you know, the stigma is very great. I think it's getting better with some mental illnesses, substance use disorders, or more accepted depression, maybe even bipolar. I think schizophrenia is kind of the last bastion where uh, people are kind of scared. Actually, when my book came out, I had a friend and administrator at the law school came to me and said she was glad she didn't know I had schizophrenia. uh, uh, before we started going out to dinner and I said why and she said I never would have gone to dinner with you oh. so here's a smart and kind and well-meaning person who harbors such fantasies about schizophrenia that she wouldn't even go to dinner with me someone who you know works in her building full-time and is, you know doing her job and acting normally and stuff like that so
0: so does that make you cautious about revealing um well that's
1: too family? late now <laughs> I mean the cat's out of the bag oh but well I mean it, it, when you meet new people uh yeah i mean a lot of times i'll be like i'll be flying to give a talk about my book and someone will say what are you talking about and i'll say something like oh a law and psychiatry issue instead of about my own mental illness but that's partly kind of internalized stigma and you know not wanting people to know it's sort of funny you know glenn close her sister's bipolar her nephews schizoaffective, and she's got an organization called bring change to mind and she's on my board i'm on her board but she had a PSA, a public service announcement with people wearing T-shirts. that said schizophrenia, a friend of schizophrenia. She gave me a T-shirt that said schizophrenia. My first thought was, well, I don't wear T-shirts to work during the week, but I do wear them on weekends, so it's nice to have a new addition. Uh, and then I thought, but do I really want to wear a T-shirt that identifies me as having schizophrenia? And then I thought, I also have cancer, and people wear arm bracelets and pins and T-shirts uh, in solidarity with pride and without shame. And that's the way it should be with schizophrenia as well, but, but we're not there yet.
0: What do you think it'll take to get us as a nation there?
1: You know, it's sort of interesting. Um, Glenn uh, works with some people who actually study stigma empirically, and it turns out People coming to see mental health disorders as brain disorders does not reduce stigma, but people coming forward as having the illness and putting a human face on it does. And especially, I'm guessing, you know, celebrities doing it is very important. But also just having knowing that the person in, your, in the office next door at work or your next door neighbor has this and they seem just like you, they want the same things you want, in Freud's words, to love and to work. That's what really uh, combats and dispels stigma. Um, So we need more people coming forward. That's easy for me to say, I've got tenure at a law school. You know, my job is secure. But other people who are more senior probably have a lot of job security and and maybe could come forward without too much jeopardy to themselves. And I think the more people do, the better it's going to be. And I see the younger generation. It's weird to say that, but (laughs) I'm in my 50s. The younger generation is much more open about having illnesses, and they, you know, talk about it in their personal statements to law school and that kind of thing in a way that people in my generation stayed way clear of.
0: Now when you meet someone new, Ellen, when do you choose to reveal that you have schizophrenia? Or how do you know that you can trust them enough to reveal that? Well my them? presumption
1: now is a lot of people know, so I don't you know, I don't feel like uh it's any big secret. Um I guess before I came out, you know, in the book, uh I would get to know a person over time and develop trust in them and feel close to them and feel Convinced that they weren't prejudiced. I had one friend, still a friend, who used to crack mental health jokes, and I never told him, even though he was a good friend. Um, But other people, you know, I would tell fairly quickly. By that, I mean a couple of months or a year, not like a couple of days. It took me a while before I told my husband. Interestingly, he's the only one who said I sort of suspected something, and either he knew me more intimately or felt freer to be frank, but that was kind of an interesting. Thing and he was great when he found out, and he was great when I had my first episode in front of him. He didn't run, he didn't flee, he didn't get angry, he didn't get scared. He called my friend Steve, and together they contacted my doctor, and it was it all worked out. You know, it's a difficult question when to tell and how, and and it's again, it's not my really my question anymore because uh, of the book, but a lot of people newly diagnosed have to struggle with that. Who should I tell? When should I tell? What should I tell? It's a big big issue. It's a big dilemma.
0: This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm speaking with Ellen Sachs, the successful scholar, lawyer and professor is sharing her experience with schizophrenia. It's part of WFUV's Strike Accord campaign on the need to combat mental health stereotypes. In your past, have you lost friends or family members because it was a reveal that you did have schizophrenia and then they chose to to pull away?
1: You know, I've had people who kind of acted odd afterwards, but I never had a close friend who basically said, oh, I know this, I can't be friends with you, or, or just acting that way, just withdrawing and not spending time. So no, I've actually had a very good response. I was warned to do the book under a pseudonym by a friend of mine who's a psychiatrist, a geriatric psychiatrist. She said, basically, do you want to become known as a schizophrenic with a job? And that really took me aback because I didn't want to become known that way. On the other hand, I felt like I couldn't do anything that might be more um, helpful to people than actually writing the book, so I decided to do it. And I thought doing it under a pseudonym would send the wrong message that this is just too awful to say out loud.
0: And it's not something that you should be embarrassed or ashamed about. Exactly. Exactly.
1: exactly.
0: So, Professor Sachs, you grew up uh, with two loving parents, a brother. Mm-hmm. You've been married a while. Two brothers. Oh, yeah. two brothers. Um, are you ever afraid your schizophrenia will become a burden to any of your family and friends?
1: Um, not really. No, I re- actually feel pretty pretty stable and not worried about serious relapse. Um, I just feel like I'm in a really good place.
0: Were you ever concerned with that?
1: Well, I, yeah, I, I, for a while I thought I would be going in and out of hospitals the rest of my life and be a burden and a disappointment and a cause of stress and stuff for my family and friends, for sure.
0: So how do you find that peace, that, that ability to be able to be who you are in front of friends and family and still uh, know that uh, you do have schizophrenia and you might have an episode and they will have to just understand who you are?
1: Yeah, no, how did, how did that happen? I just It was just a long process of coming to terms with having the illness. Um, so, I mean, I understand that I have it, and I understand that it needs to be treated. Um,
0: did you feel that because you now are coming to terms with it and are getting comfortable with it, then that helped them become more comfortable with it?
1: You know, honestly, with my family, my not my husband, but my family of origin, I really, like, kept them very distant from my illness life. The reason I did that, you know, I basically... Didn't tell them I was hospitalized, and for a couple of the times. But my basic feeling was, you know, I had been living independently for a number of years before I became ill, and I did not want to go back to being the kid in my family of origin. Also, I didn't want to worry my parents. I didn't want to disappoint them. They don't do they don't do supportive that well. We're very close. We speak on the phone pretty much every day, but I don't talk to them about my illness. And when they read my book, they, they got involved at the Yale breakdown. Their, their fantasy was I had the Yale breakdown, and I've been fine since, and that was far from the truth. I had multiple psychotic episodes, sometimes resulting in my doctors urging me to go to the hospital, which I always declined, and they were kind enough and generous enough to sit with a bunch of anxiety and not force me. Um, and when my parents read my book, they were hurt that they didn't know uh, more And, uh, you know, I kind of felt bad about that, but I still feel like I made the right decision for me. And it's sort of an interesting issue, families of people with mental health disorders, because a lot of times the families want to be involved and the patient doesn't want them involved. And sometimes the patient is right that they're not good for them, and sometimes it's not a good decision and they should be worked with. Um, But for me, uh, you know, I I did not rely or whatever on, on my parents around my
0: illness. Ellen, in your autobiography and just a few minutes ago, you discussed uh, spending time in mental institutions, being in and out of them. And and you actually spent time in both American institutions and in England. So Mm -hmm. which do you prefer and why?
1: Oh, gosh, I found the English hospital just so much more benign. At the time when I was in late 70s, early 80s, um, in both places, um, the, the statistics were staggering. So Britain hospitalized involuntarily, three percent of their patients and that was including emergency hospitalization. America hospitalized involuntarily fifty percent and that wasn't including emergency commitments. Most wards in England were open. Most wards in America were locked. Hospitals in America used uh, extreme mechanical restraints. tying people spread eagle to a bed at four and six points. England hadn't used those for 225 years. In term, so there's much less coercion in the British system, much more humanity and decency, and it's also the case that they provide more resources. So, when I left Oxford in 1982, there were 43. A town of 125,000, there were 42 group homes for patients with mental health disorders. Moved to New Haven, Connecticut, same 125,000, one halfway house. Of course, the institutionalization is going to fail if we don't put uh, if we don't put resources uh, in the community to help people who have been deinstitutionalized. So I, you know, I just see the British system as sort of uh kind of more hands off, the American system was more actively interventionist, and I completely prefer the British system. I've come to say I'm very pro psychiatry but I'm very anti force and the American system is just riddled with force.
0: What do you suggest needs to move forward for America to change the way they deal with a person with a mental condition?
1: Well, I mean, I think – I mean, one thing might be to send some Americans over to Britain and study how they do it. Um, I think, you know, other things are uh, – you know, for instance, restraints. My I have this new institute, Sachs Institute for Mental Health Law Policy and Ethics. In the first year, we studied restraints. And there have been restraint reduction efforts in Pennsylvania and Massachusetts, which have been very successful, and I think other jurisdictions should, should follow suit. And I think, uh, we try, should figure out ways, um, to reduce the use of coercion, and, and one thing we might do is study ways we can get people to want help so we don't have to use force. So there are a bunch of things that I think, steps that we can and should take. It's gonna be a long process, though. I mean, it's sort of the system, it's sort of ingrained in the system that you have to use torsion and force in
0: America. So education is the key here. I think so, yeah. Education and research. Exactly. Professor Sachs, in your autobiography, you say philosophy and psychosis have more in common than people might think. What did you mean by that statement?
1: So it's sort of interesting. I mean, I think, you know, philosophy is like very abstract, so you're not checked by the empirical world. You've got freedom to explore lots of different things. And I think some of the things that philosophers work with, think about, struggle with are things that mental health patients enact and philosophers don't. So as an example, it's an elementary principle of introduction philosophy class that there's no way to prove the existence of an external world. All you've got is your sense impressions and there may be nothing out there and there's no way to prove that there is. Well, people with psychosis Philosophers don't live that way. They live as if there's an external world, that there are real things, that there are real people, that there are real constraints. A lot of psychotic people enact this idea of no external world. So Daniel Paul Schraber, the German judge who had a breakdown, who Freud wrote about, believed that the external world had come to an end. And so he didn't interact with anyone or anything because it wasn't real. It was just figments. Um, So I think that's kind of interesting. And there are other examples of that where, you know, philosophers will think about something and people with psychosis will actually live it. I think, you know, what philosophy does is useful and important. Um, It's just kind of striking. Another example is Daniel Paul Schraber wrote a memoir called The Memoir of My Nervous Illness where he has this entire cosmology, which was very reminiscent of some of the cosmologies of the earlier philosophers like Spinoza, with the exception that it was very self-referential. So... It focused on him, which was a bit odd. But the system building was basically the same thing. It's kind of interesting.
0: You recently had your book, Informed Consent to Psychoanalysis, Uh and the law, the theory, and the data that was recently published by Fordham Press.
1: Yes, I was delighted to work with them.
0: I was going to say, can you give us a synopsis?
1: Yeah, basically, informed consent doctrine in medicine in general says that you need to inform the patient of the nature of the procedure, the risks and benefits of alternatives. And the question is, should you do that, must you do that, and should you do that in the case of psychoanalysis? And the first part of the book reviews the law on that, which is kind of ambiguous. The second part looks at the theory. So I ask questions like, is it actually possible to understand psychoanalysis, or once you understand it, is it too late? So, is informed consent to psychoanalysis even possible? Another question is, is it therapeutic or counter therapeutic? Another question is, is it much ado about nothing? Nobody, it doesn't really affect anybody or anything. And in the third part of the book, I look I, a survey that I did with around 60 uh, return questionnaires, a very long questionnaire, looking at what analysts do and why. And it was kind of interesting, basically very mixed about what people do and why they do it and how they do it. So that's the book, "The Law," then I look at the theory and then I report on the data.
0: Did you have a goal in mind when you set out to write the book?
1: Uh, I just wanted to think about the idea of psychoinformed consent in the context of psychoanalysis.
0: Ellen, do you have any advice for someone who may be suffering with a form, any form of mental illness?
1: Get care. You know, Don't let the, don't let the stigma deter, deter you from getting care. These illnesses are mostly treatable, and you shouldn't have to suffer, but you will if you don't get care. I think it's just so, so important uh, uh, that people do that.
0: And how about advice for maybe a family member or friend in how they can deal with or help someone with a, a mental illness?
1: It varies from person to person, you know, so when I start having symptoms, as I think I said, I, you know, people will rally around me and say, I know you're feeling bad and we're going to get you help. I tried that with a severely bipolar friend and he was furious that I said that. So it's not one size fits all. But I think, you know, the bottom line is, you know, stay the course, be supportive, don't get too scared, help the person access more treatment.
0: Ellen, why was he angry with you? at the
1: idea that he was that there was something wrong with him and that he needed help. He was just in a great state of mind and why would I even suggest help? That was just an offense.
0: In addition to a person receiving help, they also have to accept that they need that help. Yeah. 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 Thank you very much and thank you for taking the time to share okay, your story. Thank you Robin. My thanks to Dr. Ellen Sachs. She's the author of a number of writings, including her autobiography, The Center Cannot Hold, My Journey Through Madness. She also co-authored Informed Consent to Psychoanalysis. It's currently out through Fordham Press. And I'd like to thank my producer, Alan Canlick. We'll end the show with Ellen Sachs reading more from her autobiography, The Center Cannot Hold, My Journey Through Madness. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.
1: I found myself in a small private room waiting for a doctor. The attendant was kind, and I readily gave him my telephone wire belt, which I had proudly made earlier in the day after starting to snap it through the air. Quoting from the text, but you can't have my six-inch nail, I said, patting my pocket. Then someone, I'll just call, the doctor arrived. Give that to me, he said. No, I said. He immediately called for security. Another attendant came in, this one not so nice. Once he'd pried the nail from my fingers, I knew I was done for. Within seconds, the doctor and his whole team of goons swooped down, grabbed me, lifted me out of the chair, and slammed me down in a nearby bed with such force that I saw stars. Then they bound both my legs and arms to the metal bed with thick leather straps. A sound came out of my mouth that I'd never heard before. half groan, half scream, barely human, and pure terror. Then the sound came again, forced from somewhere deep inside my belly and scraping my throat raw. No, I shouted. Stop this. Don't do this to me. I glanced up to see a face watching the entire scene through the window and the steel door. Why was she watching me? Who was she? I was an exhibit, a specimen, a bug impaled on a pin and helpless to escape. Please, I begged. Please. This is like something from the Middle Ages. Please. No.